to Radio Morpork, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld book by book, analysing, discussing, ranking, and if we're being perfectly honest, rambling. Hmm. I'm Colin Kearns, and I'm joined, as ever, by... Stephen Hill, a guy. <laughs> uh, a humble, but undoubtedly accurate description. <laughs> Um, and this week, myself and renowned guy, Stephen Hill, are discussing Reaper Man, the 11th book in the Discworld, if you get Eric as being in the main series, which we have, if you've heard our Eric episodes. So, Steve, Reaper Man. How did you feel about this going into it when you were picking it up again? Um, I was I was very curious because I it had been a good while since I read it, but I really... Um, really uh, liked it uh, I remember really liking it but um, and, and I have a feeling like it seems to attract a lot of uh, affection and enthusiasm in certain areas of kind of Discworld fandom and criticism but not unanimously like mm. we'll, we'll see when we get to the end of our list I don't want to kind of feel bound by what I, I, I try to take many opinions on board but I don't want to feel bound by what anyone else thinks but Having looked at other, you know, across other Discworld blogs and websites and, you know, social media, you see a couple that usually end up, like, on average, in the upper echelons of people's mm. opinion. Small Gods, Nightwatch, uh, Lords and Ladies, Thief of Time, usually as well. And But Reaper Man was a bit of an oddity where, like, sometimes, you know, some people would have it, like, it's... I think I saw like a BuzzFeed list that had like the second best Discworld book ever, oh, and then yeah. other people will be a lot more um, cool on it, I suppose. What, what about you? What were you thinking going in? Do you know, it's funny you should say that, because when I was going into it, I was thinking, oh, right, here we go, Reaper Man again. I wasn't really looking forward to it, but I couldn't really give you a good reason why. <laughs> I think it's because, um, and this is something we'll go into a bit more, is this is a really action-orientated book, it, at least on the, the wizard side, where mm-hmm. in Angmorpork, there's a lot of action going on. And you think, compared to moving pictures especially, you can tell that the pace has really amped up. Like, all the paragraphs are very, very short. I'm sure you probably know. It's mm-hmm. like, you'll read maybe at most a page and a half, and then it jumps to a different perspective. Like, it's very animated and full of life, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think that was the point. But the thing is... With all that action, I, fa- I find it a bit, um, when I'm thinking back on it, especially before I read it this time around, and it had been a long time since I'd read it the last time, I find it very hard to remember specifics about it. I got a very general overview. Mm. I found the death aspect of it very easy to remember, and I remember enjoying that part of it. But the wizard's aspect of it, I found just utterly chaotic and... I hesitate to use this comparison because I think I'd be doing a huge disservice to Terry Pratchett, but weirdly what comes to mind is like Michael Bay's Transformers movies where there's like so much going on <laughs> that it just, it's it's nonsensical and insane and crazy. Now, having read it since, I know that's not the case. Before like anyone starts writing us angry letters and howlers and like screaming at us telling us like that's utterly bizarre if, and nonsense. Trans- Michael Bay remade Transformers with the Unseen University faculty in place of <laughs> CGI car robots. I'm... I would go see it in a I would. It I would be incredible. Yeah, I'd go see it ten times over. Andy Circus could be the library. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be incredible. 
But um, yeah, when I was going into it, I had to admit I wasn't enthused about it. I do remember really enjoying the death aspect. Of it. I always enjoy any part of a, a Discworld book that has death in it because I just find him a really interesting character. Because you're like, gosh. That could be it. Yeah, I mean, I'm wearing some black. Oh, well, actually, it's just <laughs> very dark blue. Going you're wearing the, the brown trousers and Darth Vader slippers of a true <laughs> goat-sacrificing metal-listening gosh. That is exactly what I'm wearing, just in case anybody's curious. Um, uh, well, I think it's interesting you hit on that, though, because I think that's definitely the... Um, I was saying how the, you know opinion seems to be divided as to whether this is one of the very best Discworld ones or you know a little more down the down the ranking, and that is what it rests on is how you feel the kind of like multiple plot lines that sort of frantic action packed pacing that you talked about where it jumps from perspective to perspective, how well you feel that works mm. is what determines you know how much you like this book or not. One thing I did think rereading it was that in my head when I went to the 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 death stuff like took up a much bigger part than I remember you know mm-hmm. um like I remembered di- often in, in the, a lot of the discord books you'll have say an a plot and a b plot you know mm-hmm. and maybe a couple of side stories but say the the balance might be usually 70 30 or um yeah, yeah. you know uh, maybe like 65 35 and I remember thinking of that Reaper Man was Death's the A plot, Wizard's B plot, but the divide is a lot closer. It's maybe 60-40 or 55-45. Yeah, very, very close. But it's pretty much 50-50. And it's not even that, um, because it's really three plots. It's like, albeit diverging, because Windle Poons uh, and the rest of the Wizards branch off from one another quite early after their initial attempts to try and, you know, their initial and very funny attempts to try and kill him and rebury him I, I love that part where uh, they talk about digging a hole and one of them says oh you put the pointy bit in the ground and after that it all gets a bit technical <laughs> and they decide to bury him at the crossroads but the crossroads actually a really busy <laughs> traffic hub <laughs> and how sort of polite and confused he's being but but after that then he until they meet up at the end with the shopping center, like for the, the guts of the book, he uh, Windle and the wizards are devo- like you know separate plot lines. Mm. There, um, just actually before we go any further, do you think we should have a basic recap of the plot? Um, we should, we should, we absolutely should, we should have already. So uh, here is our basic recap of the plot. Death has got the sack. The auditors of reality have deemed him unsuitable to continue his job owing to his developing a personality. Death takes on the identity of Bill Dorr, adapting to the ups and downs of life as a farm labourer working for Miss Flitworth, a spinster in the rural octarine grass country. Meanwhile, the temporary absence of death brings chaos to Ankh-Morpork, where elderly wizard Windle Poons becomes an unwilling zombie, doomed to live on despite the shambolic efforts of his colleagues to bring him to a permanent end. The excess of life energy also brings a sinister parasite to the city, which insinuates its way into people's lives in the form of snow globes and shopping trolleys. Events reach a climax as the parasitic life form transforms into a monster shopping centre, and a new death emerges to take up the life of the old one. Windle, with the help from some other errant undead and the unseen university faculty, manages to destroy the shopping centre, while Det triumphs over his would-be replacement and is given his old job back. Sadly, his first task is to take the life of his cherished Miss Flitworth. 
He does so, but not before showing her more of life than she ever had seen before. Yeah, so that, that hopefully will refresh the memories of anyone who hasn't read Reaper Man in a while. So, yeah, that was that was a bit of um, dissonance for me coming back to it and seeing that the death plot was, while still hugely important to the book, less prominent in terms of page space than I remember. Mm-hmm. So there are those frustrating parts where, as funny as Windle and the Wizard stuff is, um, the death part's definitely the best bit about this book. Absolutely, and, yeah. <laughs> it feels like a wrench whenever it leaves it. And yet, at the same time, it's hard to imagine it being longer. You know, you probably get enough of it, mm. enough of it as as you need and it, as is effective. And maybe if he did, you know, if, if the thought had had occurred to Pratchett or his um, editor during the uh, writing of it, of oh, you you need to decide which is the A plot, write more death stuff, mm. maybe we wouldn't be remembering it as Bondi because it would seem a bit more bloated or something. Because as yeah. it is, it's like every bit of it just uh, is so excellent and always hits up a point, whether it's humour, whether it's just his, you know, kind of struggle to get used to life in its little mundane ways. Like, there's, there's so much there. There's the bit with the little girl seeing him for what he really is as a, That's a skeleton. And that comes in the middle of this wonderful touching but quite funny bit where he goes to the pub and is too good at all the games and so then pretends to be bad at pool mm. or pond as they call it <laughs> at darts so then they like him and it goes I think the line is they called him good old Bill nobody old. had ever called him good old Bill before yeah yeah, um, that's a wonderful moment <laughs> yeah so you have this like lovely moment of him kind of becoming part of the community and then something threatening that but it also been making a bigger point of just of how people perceive things in general and why it's a child that doesn't and then you have that lovely bit later where the, the little girl comes up to him and starts talking to him and then just starts going off on these really <laughs> random childish tangents. Like, I have socks on today. I have new socks today. That sort of thing. Do you know? Do you know? <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love that. I, I come from a really big extended family, so I have like extensive experience with, you know with younger cousins and things like that and it just like absolutely hit home with me like that trying to maintain a, a rational consistent conversation they have no a, interest in the momentum they have no interest yeah. in the momentum of a conversation like you know if it's run its course it's run its course start a new conversation even if that conversation is two lines and you just move on yeah it's very accurate but um, as you say yeah I think you're right it, it's always for anyone who's read Discworld I think you can automatically assume they're a fan, but um, it's very difficult to say if there's something you want to change, what it is you would change, because there's nearly all, there's almost always a situation where you have to say, well, I wouldn't do that, even though it has that bit in it that mm-hmm. I really like. It's a bit of a devil's advocate to say, but if I had to change something, I think I'd remove, um, I can't remember what they're called now, the, the, the group of... Uh, Dead rights activists. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. What, what were they called again? Um, Early risers or something like that? No, or oh, uh, oh it, well, it, do, it doesn't. Uh, Fresh Start Club. Fresh Start Club. Yeah. That was it. It's the thing is, they're. <laughs> it's a wonderful like a uh, mix of. It, it's actually you can just see it's Harry Potter having fun, thinking of what are all the versions of undead. How can we play yeah, with that? Yeah. And you've got like the agoraphobic boogeyman. You've got like the. Uh, the nervous banshee who's afraid to speak mm-hmm. like no hope or in a, out loud in front of a crowd and you have uh, of course actually one thing that I 
really wouldn't want to change would be the Count and Countess. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's just like they're these this wonderful, wonderful. If that would be the hardest thing to give up, like the likes of um, just to finish that list off, like the likes of Red Shoe, I wouldn't mind getting rid of. Um, even though it's very sweet, I think uh, the Lupine uh, story aspect with um, Mrs. Cake's daughter, Ludmilla. Ludmilla, yeah, I think that's a lovely storyline. But again, not strictly necessary. The only thing in there I couldn't bring myself to take away would be the Count and the Countess. I, I, I would um, disagree with you about the Ludmilla Lupine um, bit because what it is really sweet. It's a it? very sweet And, and the bit where Wendell thinks about how like they'll only be together one week out of four, mm. but that's enough and that's more than you know, what a lot of people get. Speaks to a lot of, I feel, what the book is trying to hit on in other parts about like, what is life and making the most out of life and the mm, kind of yeah. creeping inexorability of aging, you know, sort of like aging towards a state of uh, being stagnant and being, you know, um, entering into decay without ever really taking advantage of your youth while you can. Mm. I feel the idea that, you know, they are going to have this imperfect fleeting relationship, but it's still worth it because it will still born brighter than their lives would without each other exactly Speaks yeah, to yeah, so. and the, the part where Lupine talks about what makes him different than other wolves is amazing and really mm. hits on something where he talks about the difference between knowing and experiencing uh, and he says here he says you don't fit in you see when I'm a wolf I remember what it's like to be a man and vice versa like I mean sometimes Sometimes, right, when I'm wolf-shaped, I run up to, into the hills in the winter, you know, when there's a crescent moon in the sky and a crust on the snow and the hills go on forever. And the other wolves, well, they feel what it's like, of course, but they don't know like I do, to feel and know at the same time. No one else knows what that's like. No one else in the whole world can know what that's like. That's the bad part, knowing there's no one else. And <laughs> that's this wonderful, awkward bit of pathos where Wendell thinks... Wendell became aware of teetering on the edge of a pit of sorrows. He never knew what to say in moments like this. And then Lupine just brightens up and changes the subject, so it never gets into it. <laughs> but that hits on Death thinks that later, when he is, mm. uh, knows he's going to die. He can see his lifetime taken down. He's waiting for the new death, and he's honing the skies. And he's out standing in the, I think it's like the sun, and feeling the wind on his face, and he thinks, did I ever feel this before? I knew it was there, but I never really felt it. Mm. And that difference between knowing and feeling, between kind of experience and just I know, like like cognitive acknowledgement, is something that the book doesn't go into in a huge amount of detail. But I feel like is really important at the like just like at the core of it poking around in what it means to be alive at mm. all. And actually, actually, that's a very good point now. And the reason that I wouldn't want to take the count and the countess out is because I feel like they're the counterbalance to that because they're literally going through the motions going through people's expectations of what they think mm -hmm. like should be and of course the count is clearly very very unhappy with this uh, you know he's trying his best to um, create a non-life and that's what it is like because there's a parallel there between them and uh, Miss Flitwick who is, you know, kind of going through the motions yeah. but not really living. Um, and that's, that's I think that's the main theme, this duality that, like, the entire book, I mean, that's the, clearly the focus in my point of view. 
the idea of the balance between life and death and not like slipping into that weird gray area of like non-life where you're not yeah. really living at all. Yeah. And, and the way, I mean, I hadn't thought of it in, in, in those terms for now, they said the way like red shoes whole point is that the undead aren't treated that well. And mm. yet you have like whatever about, I, I think that the Count, like Arthur, I think he actually becomes a vampire, right? When he inherits it. Like mm. he is, but his wife isn't. But yeah, she she's sort not. of acts like one. Yeah. So she's willingly taking on this this half life rather than living her own life. Um, and and there's that whole double life thing, like stopping you from actually enjoying life, runs through the whole of it between like death and being whether he's Bill or or whether whether he's death. Death himself. Being a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the werewolves. You know, when when are they truly themselves? Is it like when when they're a wolf or when they're more human. And I think it's it's really interesting that like the only one who doesn't seem to have that is Mrs. Flitworth's father is a smuggler, which you think of as like a very covert, um, you know, illegal occupation that necessitates a double life, where he would have some sort of front for his family of you know an honest trade, but then have to go off and do this dangerous illegal work. Mm. But he doesn't seem to have to at all because she knows and she was fine with it. Mm. Um, and like while that's you know in the background, obviously he's dead when the book begins. I like. I feel like, in a very subtle way, that's part of what Death learns from her is you know, reconciling the this, uh, this unglamorous, unpopular job with a normal social existence. You know, mm. like her father could clearly do it, and it's sort of what he's always trying to do. Yeah, um, yeah. But the Fresh Start Club stuff. Uh, I think they're really funny. I, I mean, I agree mm. with you. Maybe you do like if, if you're being really uh, utilitarian about it. Maybe you do spend a, a little too uh, much time with them. But the, the thing I think lets them down really is that uh, Wendell himself sort of lacks any real tangible character, like distinct characteristics beyond his situation of he was an old mm. wizard who's now a zombie. It's very difficult. You see, the thing with that is, you, you are right, of course, but the issue with that is he's built his character up till now as this literally like, just this forgetful old wizard and his entire characterization is that he's uh, senile, basically. Yeah. And now suddenly, because he's he has to not be senile for this whole thing, he's, um, they basically have to create, this is, he's essentially an entirely new character for this book. Yeah, but um, but he's but he's a dirty old man at the start and and in moving pictures, you know, mm. uh, like at the, when his death day party, he's talking about coming back as a woman, and the bursar says how um, you know is, doesn't that involve a lot of cleaning up and things like that, and goes, oh, not in the life I've got planned, um, <laughs> you know, and and that aspect of him go vanishes completely when he comes back, mm. um, and I'm borrowing this off, like as I said, I, I try and read through. Um, like other reflections on these books to bounce my own thoughts after the matter. I've, I've reread them and, and there's a chap who blogs in her name, Vacuous Waster, I'll mention in this blog board. He, he talks about how like Wendell is used throughout the book to reflect on sort of what we're talking about, what a lot of the book gets out mm-hmm. of it, like, you know, aging and how it easy, how easy it is to kind of throw your life away without noticing by saying no to everything as you just slide towards this, state of senility and you know where you can't really do anything but you never get anything tangible or distinct in that like he thinks in very general terms about like oh 
I, you know, for the last few years have been so old, I never left the university or I, I you know, I, um, he, he sort of thinks, uh, I think at one point he's like, how, uh, like, oh, that's what I would have said. And he thinks, no, I would have said, what? What did you say? Mm, mm. Um, and those little bits are funny and there's a few kind of like pity, witty remarks about like old age and him looking back at it with the clarity of someone who's come through it. But you don't get anything that's like, really distinct to him where he reflects back on his life and thinks oh I, I could have done this but I, I didn't I always took the safe route and mm. then look what happened to me or you know I drifted into old age when whatever this other wizard I know or this other person I know was, was doing something exciting instead or I turned down the chance to do this you don't get anything distinct like that you just no. get these very general reflections of oh, yeah I let myself get old and really broad strokes uh, mm. observations on you know the, the process of aging which a lot of them like in themselves are are good and resound with the books other themes but for him as a character they don't make him particularly distinct and engaging true um, yeah and um, given that like he you know when he's this dirty old man who's like you know in a state of paralysis drifting towards death he's talking about being reincarnated and when he comes back as a zombie he has this new lease of life where he can, you know, he's suddenly much stronger and can move around. And yet, understandably, he's, his first priority is to find out, oh, well, what's going on? Why, why am I really dead? But yet, at the same time, you think he seems to have been looking forward to enjoy his life again after he's reincarnated. Shouldn't he try to enjoy it a bit as a, as a zombie? Because, uh, yeah. like, like, that whole, he almost, like, hedonistic aspect of his character seems to vanish and he just becomes this sort of well maybe that is every actually, man detective who <laughs> solves the plot maybe that is a little bit um reflect or um emblematic of his character i mean all his life he's uh you know he's been this wizard who played it safe and like you know he just kind of let people do things for him and then when he goes into this like uh reincarnated like life is when he's as a zombie again it's not what he imagined it's more difficult like it's not like mm-hmm. the warm cuddly like reincarnation he expected and because of that he's kind of you know well bugger this then for a game of soldiers like yeah. maybe he's just uh maybe that is a bit reflective of his character a little bit yeah but it, it just doesn't seem like much of a character you know that's it seem very distinct distinct I, th- I think um actually uh what what sums it up much much better and in a much shorter space of time is actually uh, Miss Flitwick at the very end when Flitworth. Flitworth, sorry, not Flitwick. That, Flitwick that's is, Harry Potter, a completely yeah, different fantasy series. The daughter series. of uh, <laughs> Professor Flitwick, but, in um, someone's Harry Potter fan fiction. When uh, Miss Flitworth dies, um, they have the entire ballroom scene, and you can see like she's far more full of life mm-hmm. than she's ever been, despite the fact that she's dead at that point. Yeah, and um, she has this wonderful moment where uh, she's speaking about how. Actually, it's summed up even better. It's weird that Wendell Poon sums it up well, but it's um, when he says it, but uh, Miss Flitworth uh, uh, symbolizes it better, I suppose, in that um, Wendell Poon says something along the lines of, uh, what was it he says? Uh, I was trying to figure out who I was, and, and Death says to him, oh, and who were you? He says, well, I was Wendell Poon's. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that, like, you know, you are who you always were, um, with uh, hopes and dreams and ambitions, but life kind of weathers you away. And that actually, I think, is um, 
a really really poignant uh, part of the book that it, it really gets across the idea that death is just a necessary evil and sometimes not not even an evil like per se sometimes it's a release sometimes it's it's something that you just have to accept and I think that's what Terry Pratchett was trying to get across that like the idea of accepting death mm-hmm. and like not in a kind of it's terrible but sometimes this is just a part of life sort of way and acknowledging that sometimes life can have negative effects on you uh, where um such as you know you know miss flitwork has been kind of chipped away all her hopes and dreams and romance and all have just been like literally stowed away in a treasure chest yeah. and like kind of tucked away and like Wendell Poons he's because of uh life has been at him and turned him into this wizened old man admittedly not very well conveyed in this book but you know you get the message anyway mm-hmm. yeah yeah certainly yeah yeah absolutely there's a kind of a it's the real tragedy is not that we're going to die sometime but that we like mightn't do anything to make our life worth living before we die exactly um, yeah and that sounds really simple but the book gets across it gets it across in very like poignant um affecting ways i have to say actually i don't know if you'd agree with me but i reading back on this this is probably the most emotional discworld book i think i've read in, in, in quite some time i mean the other ones there are some of them that have emotional moments but in particularly, in particular, the moments with death as Bill Dore coming to terms with his life and other people's lives. Yeah. It's very emotionally driven. I mean, like, you have the entire, the little girl, Sal, her death mm-hmm. is very, I mean, the moment where uh, death says it in a very matter-of-fact way, says, oh, everyone must die. We can't, like, you know, meddle in the affairs of, like, you know, destiny or whatever it is, he says. And it's just, you know, it's... It's, oh. it's it's grim and then uh, you know Miss um, Flitworth kind of slaps and says you leave my farm tonight and like he, he's kind of understanding slowly but surely like you know what it means to live De- death was it like death knew that to you know meddle with one life could destroy the entire cosmos mm. but to build or that was also much horse elbows exactly that, yeah. that is a that is a punch the air enjoy moment like mm. that is the literary equivalent of the fake out in Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run where he just starts out, <laughs> one two three four yeah it's also <laughs> like um, it's, it's it's amazing um, yeah uh, like the, it, it is it really this it's kind of emotional highs I'm like we've got the, the list up ahead of us which obviously will get way down to you know at the end of this podcast but like I'm just looking at it see the ones we've covered so far and like it's it's I don't know if any of them can match somebody. Like, I brought a diamond to be your friend. Yeah. I well up every time I read that. Like I that, know. It's that's, really... that's the sweetest <laughs> thing. You know? This perfect, you know, well-meaning misunderstanding of, uh, of romance. Where he's going into the shops and asking how friendly. Oh. I love it. It's, it's, it's actually, it's a bit like watching, you know, a really geeky guy trying to ask out, yeah. like, you know, the most popular girl at prom, that sort of thing. But the totally... most popular girl at the prom is, like, an old spinster on a farm. Which like, makes that's it... The, that's what I love it. it is, this is, like, it's it's a really bizarre twist on a beautiful, beautiful yeah. romance that still works. Um, but having said that, the bit that always catches me is there's, uh, at one point, like, just before the new death arrives... No, it's when um, death is sharpening the scythe. Mm-hmm. trying to get it like sharp enough that he can actually fight the new death and uh, he just says very casually offhand just saying I do not wish to die yeah. and it's just it. I always find that hits home really really powerfully like it's it's what the entire book is about for like getting death 
to appreciate life mm-hmm. and it does it in so many um very clever ways i mean just the fact that it delves into the actual symbolism of the grim mm-hmm. reaper itself you know like the way the stalks of uh, corn represent life and there's a wonderful moment where he says some of the corn isn't as tall as others or as long as others but it all like gets cut all the same yeah that sort of oh, it's it's just really and there's uh, another moment where he says as death uh, you know I've lived endlessly and you know I never really took note of time but when mm-hmm. he actually has time suddenly it's really every second counts where he, where he goes and uh, there's him and Mrs. Flitwood are speaking and I think it's the first time she's kind of asked him into her sitting room mm. um, and it, like he just interrupts her to turn off the clock mm. because it's bothering him or he, he gets terrified the first time he goes to sleep because he sees it's like things. it's I mean now it's, it's, it's a really weird and amazing and complex thing that the guts of like a lot so much of the book is about accepting the fact that we'll die and that, that that's inevitability and it's not necessarily always a bad thing and yet you have these bits that kick out against and not only the part where he saves Sal um, and that uh, dissonance between what death thinks and what Bill Dorr thinks mm. but the fact that he is essentially the main character of the book his whole battle throughout it is that he doesn't want to die you mm. know um, and in it doesn't really come across as selfish or self-indulgent or anything like that uh, I was thinking I, I just watched the um, season finale of Doctor Who uh, last night and I don't know. I don't know if I should say cause when I when whenever this goes out, I might spoil things for some people. But um, everyone knows Peter Capaldi is going to leave at in at mm. Christmas anyway, and they they sort of tease about like uh, you know whether he's going to regenerate, and he he doesn't. He says he doesn't want to, and I felt really conflicted after watching it because I thought like, oh no, the Doctor should only not want to regenerate when him regenerating would like hurt other people like he should you know he stops himself regenerating so he can save today and then he's okay with this version of him dying you know mm-hmm. like it felt like it kind of felt to me uh, I, I don't want to you know uh, make any um, sweeping statements about it because it'll be followed up on in the uh, Christmas episode but it sort of felt to me like oh he's, he's just actually being really selfish and reading uh, like having read this deck could come across the same way where you've got this whole book and his whole purpose has been getting everyone to accept that and then when it comes to him he's suddenly saying you know, no, I don't want to go. But yet it feels really affecting because mm. you get that sense that when humans die into this world, just whatever they believe happens to them happens. But he won't get that because he's outside humanity, mm. but being made to play by humanity's rules or the rules that rule humanity since the auditors got him sacked. And that feels really unfair. You suddenly realize that, like, oh, it's not as if, you know, he's got some cushy retirement or it's not as if he's just become human now. He is something that can't really be human being forced to be human. And that's Mm. actually really cruel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can't really say that it is selfish because it's the most basic human desire. Like, Mm-hmm. that there is the you know, desire to live and not wanting to die you can't really call that selfish like I know what you mean like um, mm-hmm. but um, I think the the moment that when he decides to save Sal that's like the turning point because you could argue that like it's selfish and like he's obsessed with like preserving all his time and you know uh, there's a moment where he says uh, I would you want to know when you're going to die I don't know how people can handle that you know yeah. like um, but then when he finally says, okay, when he realizes that it's not about 
how much time you have it's about the quality of like what you do and that's that like you know mm-hmm. beautifully summed up when you decide it's a very simple thing and it's been done before but it's still very effective that he says I'm just going to save this little girl because she has her whole life ahead of her even though in one mind he's thinking you know that affects the whole you know universe but now he's human he understands basic desires and he understands that like how devastating this would be for the little girl and for the family so it's just it conflicts yeah but um it's it's a it's a beautiful turning point i think anyway but, yeah um, it really is what did you think actually of um i found interesting that there was a dancing motif going around for a lot of it. i thought that was neatly emblematic of like you know having a good quality of life you know I, the book it's bookended by With the, the morris dancing the one of life and one of death um what do you think of that um you probably have more to say about it than I do because I noticed that the Morris dance stuff, but I, I don't know that it jumped out at me elsewhere other than the the dance Miss Flitworth and Death mm. go to at, at the end. Mm. Um, well, it was no, admittedly, it wasn't like you know everywhere or anything. I mean, they had the Morris dancing thing, and that very neatly. I mean, Morris dancing, it's you know all about like life, and because it's like Morris dancing, it's such a like raucous, crazy dance, like mm-hmm. all about like it's very lively basically yeah and there's the dance of death where it's almost the exact same thing but the bells don't make any noise um i mean i I think it just highlights the whole duality but um also accepting of both you know because they they can't do one dance without doing the other um Mm -hmm. also very neat that it starts with the morris dance and ends with the death dance um the barn dance i kind of thought was uh the one where death and miss fitworth dance at is kind of I just found that I found it really interesting that that's the most lively you see Miss Flitworth at all, and it takes place after she's died. So whereas like the whole uh, book, she's kind of going through the motions and she's basically playing up to the stereotype of like you know the cantankerous old woman who's like you know hoarding and doesn't really have a life. Uh, but then when she actually finally, I don't know if you could say accepts death, but symbolically accepts death then she kind of reverts back to the youthful, her youthful self mm-hmm. when she had hopes and dreams and she's just enjoying life and nothing really mattered. And you can tell that because like she keeps, she and death keep like, you know, yelling at the players, keep playing for the love of God, keep playing just because they're just having so much fun yeah. and they're in the moment. But the last uh, moment or the last place that it really comes up is there's a couple of times, I think it's only now two, maybe three times, but death is looking out at the cornfields and he, a lot of times he mentions that like the corn is dancing in the wind and like because he um you know he references corn as like a symbol for like life and people's lives and you know just it's a very i think it's the moment when he's sitting with all the old men and you know they're sharing this the jar of scumble mm-hmm. and he's having a wonderful peaceful moment and he's just he really it's a really reflective moment where he's just taking it in it doesn't really serve the story per se except for to show that he is taking it in what it means to be alive you know that wonderful peaceful moment where he's with people who are calling him good old Bill yeah. and he's looking out with cornfields just like dancing away I just think that was a really really nice motif myself yeah absolutely and that he's having what's actually a really average life in a lot of ways but mm. that mean, you know means so much to him yeah um, I mean you see when he goes down and he can just instantly win at pool and darts that like if if he wanted to he could live his life as you know, he could be kind of world famous on the disc as a player of something or anything. Professional he turned his player. <laughs> yes, but like it sort of implied that he could do it with anything. That he he'd just yeah. be perfect at whatever he tried. 
because he didn't know how not to be, which is which is I I love that way of putting it. But that he that never occurs to him. Like mm. in fact, it occurs to him to do the opposite, so people will like him, and then he can just enjoy this very normal, average, run of the mill rural life. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like it's excellent. And again, it never it never has to say that, which, which I like. You know, yeah. you don't have him thinking, "Oh, this life seems so normal, and yet I love it." He, he just enjoys it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there's the odd moment where it gets a little unsubtle where I think there's like a twice in a space of a couple of pages you have both Windle and Miss Flitwort in separate bits thinking maybe life is something you acquire and the fact that they both not that they think the same thing but that they use the same turn of phrase mm. seems a bit too on the nose but by and large it has the book has all of these different you know teams and ideas that it sort of lets bubble under the surface and seep through in little remarks and comments without you know presenting big polemics like there's a lot of times where Det and Miss Flitworth disagree or even where Det and Bill Dore disagree mm. where you don't really get a definite answer uh, the, as I said the fact when he says like goes to say Sal Bill Dore thought that oh, so much horse elbows yeah, yeah. is a punch the air joy moment but yet at the same time particularly having read uh, Mort before this you, you are left wondering after that thinking oh will something go horribly wrong here because he's done this mm. I I'm cheering that he done it, and yet is it so good? Um, and you sort of understand that he can't really do that all the time now. Uh, like he can't just say like in for a penny, in for a pound. I, I'm yeah. saved her, even though I know she should die. So I'm going to do that to everyone. But you know, I actually think it's a good thing that it um, that it doesn't draw attention. That like you're not supposed to. I I I know naturally because we've read more. Like if you do mm-hmm. dwell on it, you are going to think, well, has is this going to affect things? But when you read the book, I don't think if you're reading the book casually, I don't think it's something you dwell on because that's human emotion. You're just going to be like, he did the right thing. There's almost no question in your mind that he did the right thing. So it doesn't matter what happened. And that's what being human is all about. You know, it's like bugger the consequences. He saved the little girl's life. That's just how it is. And I think I think that was a deliberate act on uh, Terry Pratchett's part. I mean, I know you could say he does sort of explain it away by like saying he replaced the sands and because he's Mm -hmm. this... um, ethereal entity maybe he can bend the rules a little bit but um i mean the only thing that like they can do is like the auditors can um come in and you know try and fire him but they've done that already yeah. so like in a way it's in for a penny but in for a pound but all he can actually do is give some of his very limited life so yeah yeah but what what i mean is even with the rest of the book you see the consequence of what no death means and that mm. it's bad so even when he saves sal and like if you enjoy that moment, you still like know why he was conflicted about it in the first place, mm-hmm. and why he, you know, he may not do be doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't present any like, you know, of uh, like what he thinks as build or is right compared to what he thinks as death, or you know, mm-hmm. like death teaches Mrs. Flit or Mrs. Flitworth teaches death the lessons he needs to know, or conversely, death brings wisdom to this you know, rural, uh, old spinster. They're like, all, all of these ideas bubble or, you know, swirl around the book and come up and get spoken about. And, you know, it doesn't really come down on any sides totally. And I like that. Like I like it. It doesn't yeah. feel like it has to. Um, I think, um, 
No, but I think uh, I think you're right because it's very um, it's. I think it's kind of easy to fall into the trap of thinking when um, Death slash Bildor saves Sal, and even though you know uh, Death thinks one thing, Bildor thinks another, it's kind of interesting to think of them as two people. But um, I think if Death had been there as Death. Then he wouldn't have thought he wouldn't have done what he did, you know. Yeah. So like, I mean, he is there as Bill Door, and even though like because we know it's the same person, it's kind of hard to get into this uh, mind frame. But because he is there as Bill uh, Door, he's basically kind of having a very very delicate sample of humanity. And the reason that he saves her there and doesn't become this like you know savior for humanity is because he's the entire point of this book is both to like for him to treasure life and everybody else to accept death. You know, so like, whereas before, like, yeah, you said, that's, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's like, whereas he before, you know, they say, um, oh, yeah, there was like literally millions of hours, but I never cared about it because there were so many of them. Um, they don't say it explicitly, but I think you could, he could, you could say the same. That's how he felt about people. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't really care that he was like, you know, just like uh, taking their lives away because. But I don't think, I don't think that is though. Like, I, I think be, because when he. When he has the the competition, the the John Henry style competition mm. against the com- combination harvester, they say that he almost beats it, even though he is cutting each stalk individually, mm. each Wait, stalk of corn. Do they say that he's doing that at that point? Yes. Are you sure? Uh, uh, yeah, and and she says it earlier. Mrs. Mm. Flintworth says it earlier. I remember when, her say, when I he goes to when he go uh, does does her field. Mm. Um, so it, it's sort of implied like that that's his attitude and that that's what makes him different than the the new deck later um is is that uh, business of like mm. even if he sort of has in very impersonal attachment to all of the lives he takes he still recognizes them as individual lives yeah. and that they're like no one is any greater than uh like than any of the others um myself and i think myself and rose talked before where like in the early books it says how Death comes personally for wizards, but maybe he wouldn't come personally for others. It, it, like it mm. implies that. I think it's when at the end of Color Magic, when Rincewind meets Scrofula, and uh, he's saying like, "No, I'm a wizard. Death is going to come for me." And we we felt that's kind of at odds with the later views of death, where it's um, you know, he seems to treat every life equally. Mm. And the sort of fan wanky head cannon conclusion we reached was that because wizards have such limited social circles and only know other wizards and they have the ability to know when they're going to die and see death coming they naturally assume that he always comes for them and doesn't come for everyone else oh. because when he's coming for you know normal and more pork uh, like underclass working class people they wouldn't even be looking out for him whereas the only time they're looking out for him is when he, he's coming for them or for other wizards mm-hmm. so they assume mm-hmm. oh death always comes in person for other wizards but you mightn't see him in, in person for normal people um, and that's not the case and it's you know it's, it's certainly kind of implied here that it's not the case because of the way he treats their lives I think what you say about um, death uh, the books about like everyone else accepting death and death kind of learning how to live mm. is very succinct way of putting it um, but the, while, while I'm on the combination the combo harvester combine harvester uh, there's an interesting thread with tradition and modernity yeah I noticed that as well and I said uh, I noticed at first in, in Life Fantastic that like all, quite often in the disc world 
you will see tradition and modernity conflicting. And my before I began this podcast, my vague um, you know idea of it would be that more often than not they would come down on the side of modernity. You would say you know something like small gods, where it's about like a you know religion. Um, stultifying and oppressing a country and they sort of need to modernise and the Moist von Lichtwig like, miniseries are all mm. about the, the disc itself modernising and to a certain extent the watch uh, novels are as well but um, there are a few of them that it, it's a bit more um, I suppose a bit less straightforward of an opposition Pyramids is sort of similar with Small Gods where it's you know how tradition kind of oppress and uh, make a country stagnant but it also seems to have all the sympathy towards those traditional views mm. and how they're really the only thing the jelly baby has to keep it in any way distinct and preserve a notion of it as having its own culture and in Life Fantastic you have like modernity in the form of Trimon being seen as a really dangerous force that um, I suppose upsets what was like a relatively benign kind of status quo of mutually assured destruction between the other wizards that kept all their Machiavellian scheming purely within Unseen University mm. like under Trimon's modernity it almost destroys the whole disc and here it definitely in a lot of ways comes down in form of tradition you have the opposition between man and machine with the combine harvester and debt um, and how the harvester when debt asks um, Ned Simnel what will the corn think mm. or what will the harvest think about being harvested that way and he can't understand um, you have obviously the, the opposition with death and the new death um, and again that sense of uh, like that the new death is faceless and uh, that like wonderful wonderful exchange where he gets outraged and at a very 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 few times I think in the entire Discworld series where you see death use an exclamation point mm. is when he sees the new death with a crown and oh, he says yeah. like I you know I never wore a crown he says you never wanted to rule Um <laughs> And when the new death starts going on about how, oh, to take the life of a, another death is worth a million normal lives. Mm. Like, that is a, a way that death, our death, would never think about it. Yeah. Um, so there's that sort of, I don't know what you would call new death's kind of modernity. It's It seems to, uh, it never really comes up, but it seems to speak to, because at the very start, death talks about how a new death will arrive through the minds of humans. And it almost seems to be very subtly poking at how our idea of death has changed over the years. How, like, previous societies, bonded discord, like, you know, really in real life as well, would have been a lot more familiar with death. And just, like, high mortality rates and things like that would have made, you know, kind of made it so that they have to be. But maybe in a lot of ways they would have had, uh, like, a healthier attitude to what of sorts where they wouldn't hide it and kind of you know be much more accepting of it as an inevitability and mm. a natural fact whereas as we've gone on we've often uh hidden death both in terms of you know you using euphemisms like passed on pushing mm. up daisies all this kind of things to just avoid saying he or she is dead the way uh, the way often people talk uh, talk to children about uh, relatives dying where they you know can't just come out and say it mm. things like even like the very queasy way we have of like speaking honestly about someone who's died particularly when it's someone famous you know it's it's come up, up a lot often in the last year when i mean last year we had so many celebrities dying but also particularly when there were like political figures in some way like when margaret thatcher died it became mm. this big argument of like the respectful not speaking ill of the dead versus actually giving an honest assessment of mm you know your opinion on that person's impact and what they've done and 
like should that really be drowned out for the sake of some kind of prim propriety around oh no we, we can't you know mm. speak honestly of this person while they're dead uh, and that our idea of death has just become a lot more distant from our everyday lives and you know in some way we all sort of think we're kind of immortal uh you even i mean i'm sure perhaps it wasn't thinking about this at the time but you even have people like peter thiel in real life like putting huge amounts of money into actually researching immortality because yeah. they're that like they are that uh, i don't know a debt is such an anathema to them so the idea of like the the debt of the disc world build or um originally being formed out of this much more close intimate view of death as a fact of life so to speak mm-hmm. and the new death being formed out of this idea of death as some kind of distant oppressor that strikes and is somehow malevolent like rather than it just being yeah we all die sometime it's somehow like like death is picking us mm-hmm. you know but but by killing on us but having by, said by that killing on us, having by s- killing us mm-hmm. and, and that idea of like death doing the killing rather than death just taking the souls as mm-hmm. he but having said that, though, now, what about uh, the New Death's, you know, obsession with theatrics? I mean, surely that's like a very modern humanist sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that, mm. that, but that's exactly what I mean. That, mm. like, the New Death is a much more modern view of death. Oh, oh would, yes. Ha- yeah, that, that he would have yeah, those yeah. theatrics. And he would, uh, like, you would be a more malevolent force because we're not just seeing death as just this natural force that happens to everyone sooner or later. We're mm. seeing it as some kind of uh, calamity that people are cursed mm. with. You know, but uh, by that token, then I mean, would that not make uh, this something? This is like a bizarre sentence to apply to anything in Disco because the answer is obvious. But um, surely, like the old death, then is rather than being a traditional one, it's a postmodern one. Looking back at everything, ironically, really, and like you know, uh, considering it in uh, different perspectives and in different and in different worlds, which literally he does. You know, yeah, sort of, but. I think only in the sense of just that Terry Pratchett's a really postmodern metatextual mm. writer that kind of imbues most of his yeah, characters yeah, of course. with that sense of knowingness where they kind of know what genre of a of a world they're in. Yeah. But I, I think by and large, like he does represent this very uh traditional, kind of ancient view. Um and a pretty healthy view of, of of death really i actually think that his view of um you know traditionalism mm-hmm. and uh, modernity would very very much reflect almost anybody's the idea being that whereas he somewhat accepts modernity as like not almost reluctantly like he knows that like modernity like a lot of like you know say modern inventions such as the combine harvester he sees the uses and the practicality and says if that's there and there's a side there he's obviously going to use that but he's a very nostalgic person so that he also like he holds he has a he holds like you know traditional values in high esteem um, even though there's not really a very practical reason for doing so other than something that's a little intangible i.e. what it is to be human what it is to live mm-hmm. life you know yeah but I sort of think it's 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 the opposite where it's that not that he goes and he opts for the, the older methods for no practical reason he opts for it deliberately because it's impractical mm-hmm. according to a given view of practicality like to Ned Simnel being practical is this machine will get rid of uh, will chop up much more of you know the harvest at once and to death it's like well no the idea should be to do them one at a time because they all matter you know mm-hmm. so 
I mean, it's it's kind of sentimental and nostalgic in the sense of it, it, it isn't really efficient or logical by um, our, you know, our most of uh, like society's way of thinking. But I think it has its own logic that like a lot of sentimental nostalgic decisions often don't. You know, it has its own logic, even if that logic seems to run completely contrary to what we would consider logic. Like to yeah. him, the, you know, they're like Ned Simnel and Death are coming at the idea of harvesting from just completely different positions. Where to Death, it's about every you know grain of corn, uh, um, or every grain of corn, every stalk of corn, ma- you know, matters equally. And to Ned Simnel, it's why well, you want this job done as quickly and you know, yeah, uh, yeah, I think I get what you mean, like easily as possible. Um, and actually, that whole idea, um, kind of. Is represented very well by the shopping mall as well. Yeah, because I was about to say we've been, you know, yeah, mentioned it all so far. And uh, actually, something I'm going to come back to on that. But um, continuing on from this point is, it, it's actually it's it's actually almost it is actually perfectly like a, a reflection of that because the shopping mall he saw, uh, you know, they talk about it as this like life parasite, it's like a lifeless mm-hmm. place. But uh, I have this written here that like uh, you know shopping malls are kind of like they. have cater to people who are looking for like the most basic functional needs that they have like you know if you need something odds are the shopping mall is going to have it it's convenient and it's like grand but most people lots of people in fact like they're not really big fans of shopping malls they prefer to go to like you know local shops where they know like maybe a product would be you know it's not universal like you know it's not you're not going to have well you would have coca-cola but you're not going to have like um you know uh you're not going to have like a pennies like kind of thing there oh, pennies or, is in plenty of shopping centers <laughs> no yeah but you're not going to get that like in your local like clothes shop you know oh, where yeah, like uh, yeah. maybe uh, you know your sister-in-law happens to work behind the counter you know you know mm-hmm. it's it's a more personal touch and like you know you're far more likely to get better service because you know you're kind of conversing with a real person who's like the business means a lot to them whereas you go to a shop mall everyone's kind of faceless and you know, almost robotic, and you know, it's it's a very kind of bland way to you know get the fundamentals of life and all the necessities you need. As, as someone who once worked in a shopping mall, I take offence to that. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> no, but but, but I, I agree with you. Um, but I I think it's like the kind of allure of shopping centres is twofold. Where yeah, for some people, you're right. It is that like sense of convenience of like, okay, I don't like shopping. Here's everything under one roof, and I go in and get it done. Mm. But for other people, it's the very opposite, where they love it, and to them, this idea is like, like something like like a Dundrum Town Centre, or you know, um, I, I, I don't know any like any of these huge kind of American malls are mm. to them are like much more glamorous than going to the local shop that your sister-in-law works behind in on like a side street or something like that you know mm. um, so it's like part of their kind of allure and their sort of I suppose social parasitic uh, potential is the fact that they pull in those both those different kinds of people like both mm. the people to whom shopping is just this functional task that you want to get out of the way as quickly as possible and the people for whom shopping is this huge social way of life yeah, yeah. Um, and like I mean they're not all encompassing obviously there's plenty of people and like myself included who like much prefer the variety of just going around a city or a town and mm. going to all of the various shops there and the, more the sense of discovery but the fact that they have the flexibility to get in different kinds of people are part of that like parasitic thing I mean I've seen so many towns that have suffered 
from shopping uh, centres opening nearby and just draining traffic off the you know off the high street and then throughout that draining the kind of social life of the town where people aren't going to shop they're not going to the cafes they're not going to the pubs and so on and the trains and i think that's definitely like the sense of it being a parasite is it like when when um windle reads that book about like a city that was not a city that took people from the city yeah. it's that it's the idea of people going out to dundrum when whatever they could be <laughs> going to like they live in Dunleary or you know Black Rock or uh, all these places that yeah like, like shops, yeah wherever you're going um, you're going to this place where you know you can get like you just know in- instinctively that this is where you can go to get whatever it is that you need to get like yeah yeah and actually the same the same has actually been happening to like my own ta- hometown Gory like mm-hmm. we had um there's a big building at the moment it's completely vacated and there's a lot of talks of someone putting a pennies in there and one of the like one of the strengths of like our hometown is we've got a big variety of clothes shops and the amount of people picketing against this saying mm-hmm. like no we don't want pennies there and it's exactly what you're saying some people are like yeah we don't want a pennies there it'll ruin the businesses of the town whereas other people are like oh that'd be so handy you know yeah. we could get like all these cheap clothes like so handy it'd be great um yeah yeah like that that's it it's like um he like the fixing a shopping center is like a kind of malignant force. He does it so well in that mm. it just lures people in, like you know, and it kind of and just lulls them into this zombified state. Because as you say, often they're thinking that while they might be met with opposition, they're all, like as equally met by people just been like, no, this is wonderful. Yeah. I can't see any catch, and then you know, uh, months, years down the line, you begin to see the effect it has on the surrounding area. Uh, I like uh, and he does just such a good job at a lot of the little things about shopping centers when he talks about the music kind of mm. flooring people in and I, I remember when I, I used to work in a bookshop in a inside that was inside a shopping center and they would have like the same kind of whatever 30 songs on a loop playing throughout <laughs> and then it was worse around Christmas where it seemed to be only a dozen songs over and over yeah. again <laughs> and I, I just remember thinking I was like what is what is the point of this music you know who like okay they're whatever it's all uh, you know kind of uh, harmless mor easy listening chart stuff it's michael buble and adele and things like that you know with the odd like little bit of rock thrown in like a, a kings of leon song or something and uh, but i just thought like who whose experience in the center is being you know improved by this you would never go in and think oh i love i love the whatever you know this shopping center because it plays this music i like but it's the kind of thing of they can't really do without it. And if, you know, a shopping center suddenly shut off its music, it probably would jar. Yeah. With its also, ambience. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of creates this weird, this state where it uses things like, uh, physical aesthetics, like our architecture and music in such a way that they don't really add anything. They don't really kind of act as like vital, enjoyable things in a way that they can in other contexts, but they're just sort of there to contribute to this overall sort of comfortable um convenient experience you know mm, mm. uh they're there because you notice them but you're constantly aware of them without ever really noticing them if you follow me yeah it's kind of i think um you'd never get like you know very depressing songs like they're always going to be upbeat cheerful songs and i think like it is just trying to trick you into thinking you're having an enjoyable experience like which I know that is a very simplified way of looking at it, but that's genuinely what I think it is. I mean, you get the same specifically for Christmas. That's always, yeah. that, that's particularly like resonant there because 
you know, you go out and, um, you know, all Christmas, almost all Christmas songs are like very cheerful and very nostalgic. Like, you know, it, it kind of uh, distracts you from the fact that like you're in a shopping mall and you're kind of uh, feeding into the whole consumerism aspect of mm-hmm. like Christmas, which is like yeah. goes completely against what the songs are like trying to represent and everything. Um, did you catch the? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure you made the connection between like the Dawn of the Dead metaphor. And, yeah, yeah. yeah and all the zombies like actually trying to get in and like into destroy the, them. Yeah. It's like looking at it from the zombies' point of view, which I quite. I mean, like. it's great. It's like the giant woman carrying up the, the ape up the tower at the end of moving pictures. Yeah. Uh, like reversing something like that seems so simple when you say it after the fact, but when you see it done on page, it is just really. Yeah, enjoyable. Do you know, a funny thing actually about the shopping mall is that before I read it, and I think this happened, I've read, I've read Reaper Man, I think this is the third time I've read it, but um, each time I do, I always seem to forget that the shopping mall, I always seem to forget the shopping mall aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I remember the, um, the, uh, the snow globes and how they evolve into the baskets. And this is, I feel very stupid for saying this this is the first time it ever really clicked with me that the baskets were shopping trolleys really yeah like whenever i picture them in my head i imagine these like you know wicker hand baskets mm-hmm. giant ones on these tiny wheels <laughs> this is the first time i actually clicked oh they're actually shopping trolleys and i should know that i worked in like i worked as a trolley boy for like nine years <laughs> but um yeah it's just uh it i feel like it's something that even though I love the metaphor and I think it's a very good one, I don't think it's particularly well explained in this book. Like, I mean, they build up to it very slowly and, um, I don't know, I feel like the payoff isn't great. Uh, yeah, well, when they tease it being like, the, the snow globes are like eggs of new cities and then you find out that it's not a new city, it's, yeah. it's a parasite. I mean, I suppose the explanation is that it's there because of the kind of excess of life. Yeah. It's like giving off on a parasite in a way that like a very fat animal might attract like, you know, some kind of uh, parasites and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's like there's two, the disc is bloated with life and mm. then it attracts parasites. It's a very satisfying but, metaphor, but just I don't think it's a very satisfying narrative conclusion. To be honest. I mean, considering like the last one where we had, you know, literally a thing from the Dungeons Dimensions, like climbing up a tower it's it's literally the ending of King Kong one of like the greatest action movies mm-hmm. ever and this one like it's uh, I don't know it's it's like a building that has some like generic tentacly things and you know it's it's it, most of the action sequence is them trying to it's you know slide jokes about what the shopping centre is and like teasing the reader into like here's this thing that you recognise but it's a little bit more yeah. sinister you know yeah well, although I like I like that atmosphere that it builds when uh, Wendell and the first star club are going through the empty shopping centre and you're kind mm-hmm. of waiting for something to happen and they see then the wizards who have become frozen in place in various roles like one of them has a security badge and so yeah. on um, but yeah, the, the end bit with Wendell fighting the the kind of insect queen at the heart of it, mm. it does feel a bit truncated and um, uh, yeah, like somewhat underwhelming. Oh, one one thing I do love as well when it when it talks about the size of the shopping center, I feel like that's something that hits on really well. Like one of them notes that's passages that could have had elephants walking abreast, mm. and I feel like that's another thing I remember getting into a conversation with um, uh, um. Stephen Hughes, a, a, a mutual friend, acquaintance of ours, about where he said he was um, 
in I think it was like Liffey Valley Shopping Centre, mm-hmm. and he said it was it, it was I think it was like early on a Sunday and there was hardly anyone around, and I, I can't remember the exact context. He might have been waiting to meet someone, so he's just standing there and watching this fly just hover around beneath the like huge ceiling high above him, and he was just thinking. Why is that ceiling so big? There's nothing up there. There's no that space. You know, like that space seems to only exist to provide, uh, you know, somewhere for this fly yeah. to move around. And he said he just got a ticket for in a way that he never had before about like all of this pointless space that just mm. exists to again the same way the music is just to kind of create an impression rather than to do anything functionally or do anything in a really direct uh, vibrant sort of way it just creates mm. a kind of impression of oh this is a consumerist palace that you can get anything in but the space you yeah know, the, it isn't like every space they can use has been taken up by shops and different things it's just a big obscene amount of space that just creates this sense of obscene bloated consumerist kind yeah. of opportunity but it wouldn't um, be the same if it was like you know if everything was like you know roof level you know if the, if the roof of the shopping centre was like try to imagine like a one story uh, shopping centre it would just be an indoor street really yeah exactly, That's, exactly. So like you know you, like you said it does need to be mm. a giant consumerist palace yeah. in order to convey that feeling of you can get everything mm. here come on in it's like almost like it's a kingdom and like there is a king somewhere it's like come on in everyone like you know enjoy that kind of way yeah you know? yeah but I, I just love that he mentioned that that he goes into detail about like Windle and the others wondering about like wow this place is huge why is it so big mm. and it isn't something that would if you were kind of thinking of shopping centres just in a in a negative way in the way that he is in, in this to kind of portray him as a parasite it isn't the first thing that would jump out at you of like Oh, they're so needlessly huge. You know, you would yeah. think of stuff like their effect on local economy and the, uh, you know, uh, kind of identikit, uh cultural homogenousness of the, the chain outlets they have, and just the, the size uh, part of it. Even though it's a small thing, just struck me as really well observed critique of it. Yeah. Uh, but all the shopping center stuff leads us to something we haven't talked about at all, which is the wizards in this. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, they. Um, Date actually, they're probably the only part of what we talked about. We got onto this talking about how this book more often than not comes down in form of in favor of some form of tradition over modernity. Mm. And they're probably the only part where you see the opposite happening, where Rid Cully is very much a modernizing influence, and that's definitely a positive thing. Mm. You saw it in moving pictures, but it really takes flight here. And even also, it's um, supplemented by Windle wondering about the. Insularness and the point of the wizard society and the pointlessness of so many of their rituals and uh, you know a lot of the humor has been brought up about how unworldly they are like again trying to dig that hole in the middle of a busy yeah. street without giving any consideration to how more park city life works mm-hmm. outside the university. Um, what what did you what did you think of them in this kind of encountering them? Do you know it's a funny thing that um, I, I was making I was making a note of one thing I wanted to do when I was just taking notes of this book in particular. I was thinking. We should start taking notes of when events, because we've read most of the Discord mm-hmm. series, but when certain events happen, and you know, I think, oh, at what point does this happen? I think it was actually uh, during moving pictures we mentioned when is it that the bursar starts going crazy, and you actually realize, yeah, it's, it's here, this, it's, it's here. in this book, and, where, and, I, and I, I never realized it was so gradual before as well. Like mm. you, you saw, like it made sense to me in moving pictures when you see him as this. Uh, quite efficient but nervous Wayland Smithers of a yeah, you know yeah. character 
Um, and by the end of it, you think, okay, I can buy that in some unspecified period between now and the next appearance of the Wizards, Reed Cully has reduced him to gibbering insanity. Mm. But I didn't realize that you would actually see some of the descent. Like, he goes yeah. from being relatively cognizant to this at the start when he started to hold up the conversation with Wendell at the death, death day party to later when he's gibbering and accusing everything of being an undead. Yeah, and I don't think it... it do, he doesn't even descend into complete, like, mm-hmm. lunacy at that stage because... As I say, it is a gradual process. I mean, he's he says yo a lot, and he's kind of like he's kind of it. Kind of comes across as he's generally dazed and kind of you know a little bit confused, but not like later books where he's you know just feed him more like you know dried frog pills there so that he can you know get a little bit of a grip on reality that sort of thing. Like he just towards the end of it, he just seems like absolutely off his rocker. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite the case here. Um, yeah, and the other thing, of course, is that ridiculously dies, but. Um, Sorry, the question that you asked me there. No, not ridiculously. Sorry, Wendell Poons. Not ridiculously, just in case there's any <laughs> worry there. But um, yes, you're asking about the wizards. And this is actually an interesting one as well, because this is the point where they kind of become uh, kind of the uh, hardy boys, kind of like uh, <laughs> of the Discord, for a sake. Because in earlier books, when the wizards show up, as you say, they're, you know, they're behind the walls of the Unseen University and they're kind of just there and something usually happens. They might observe something and maybe like they'll do, you know, they might throw an odd spell mm-hmm. at. But here's where they start actually doing things. And I remember um, when uh, I was reading through, uh, there was an index in one of the Discworld books and instead of doing the chronologically, they grouped them. So you have, here are death books, here are the guards yeah. books. And... Oddly enough, there here is the Rincewind books, and here are the Wizard books. So now the weird thing is, like some of the Wizard books, they seem to cross over with like Death. For one thing, Reaperman was mm-hmm. part of the Death books, but um, I think Sorcery was one of the Wizard books, and uh, there was another one. Oh, there was another later one. I can't remember which one Last it was. Continent. That could have been it, actually. Oh wait, no, that was a Guards book. No wait, no, no, Last no, Continent's a Rincewind one, but it's got a big Wizards like. Oh yeah, that's oh yes, that actually I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So it's an odd one like that. Um, it is around this point that they're kind of jumping up and becoming more active. I have to say, I I, I like it a lot. It's um, it is it does kind of tie in with the whole idea of like you know, uh, really uh, seizing the day mm-hmm. and like you know, especially when they realize they're having lots of fun taking out all yeah, these uh, yeah. like they're kind of doing some good here, which bit of a corny way to put it but that is kind of what they're doing they're realizing like the merits of going out and essentially mingling with the common people and not just like festering behind the walls so um also it gets very uh 80s action movie towards the end when like they set off three spells at the same time with like an mm-hmm. extended timer to kind of go off after they've left the building um what did you think of it i yeah i, I really liked them as you said they kind of this is their full blossoming into the, their later form and similar to moving pictures they're reacting to a threat that they haven't actually caused which mm. is unlike all the previous books where whenever they're doing something it's usually because they've caused a problem in the first place yeah. um, but it, it strikes a good balance between like there's an interesting tension in the earlier ones about wizardry being this incredibly powerful institution that is also so fundamentally divorced from the rest of society that you wonder as to what the point of it is. So you have stuff... It comes up a lot in sorcery 
or the other characters denigrate wizardry and Rincewind feels conflicted because he's a failed wizard but mm-hmm. he's still a wizard and it even comes up a bit in moving pictures where Ginger starts saying about you know well what good has wizards ever done anything and comparing them unfavorably to the magic of moving pictures um, and I feel like f- from now going forward with these they clearly do do some good and even if they're you know kind of hapless and bungling and argumentative i mean uh, i love how confused lord miller is yeah. but encountering them and thinking like are these 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 are the smart guys yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and, and that's the balance where they can still be like they can be doing some good and being quite relatively proactive in addressing these threats and anomalies that occur in the disc world, but still being really self-important and pompous and mm. divided from normal society to the extent that other people are just kind of confused by them. Yeah. And there's both foil for comedy there, but also interesting food for thought as to like just you know institutions in general, not only academia like them, mm. uh, like they are, but I suppose science and religion even they could be seen to represent some of these kind of. Uh, you know bounce off the ideas of some of these groups who get so twisted up in their own insular arguments and priorities that like you know the rest of society finds some kind of incomprehensible or pointless Mm. or so on it's interesting that um talking about it now i realize i do really like those uh, bits a lot but originally i was going to bring up the point that i didn't like them but the reason that i was thinking that is just because i think the death parts and the wizard parts don't mesh that well together mm-hmm. because whereas a lot of the death parts are very reflective and meditative, all the wizard parts are very action oriented. I mean, like it's literally about them jumping up and like, you know, taking action. So yeah. there's a, there's a clash there that it's not, it's not like a complete deal breaker. It doesn't, you know, spoil the book by any means, but it's very noticeable. It's very hard to go from one paragraph. Let's say like, you know, it's, very very actiony, and then um, suddenly going into uh, you know death, looking at the fields. But it's even more jarring when it goes the other way around because you really the death parts are more enjoyable, and you know it has a really really it's it's, it's very easy to invest in his journey of like you know acquiring humanity, and then suddenly go back to this mystery that if you haven't read the book before, you're still trying to figure out. It's confusing and it's anarchy, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my personal opinion is that I don't think that they mesh together particularly well, even though I really enjoy them in, like, you know, singularity. Yeah, it's, I, I suppose it can go one of two ways, like, that you can view that as really um, incongruous and it's like kind of jarring to go for one or the other, or you can see it as a strength of the variety that you have this mm. really batshit insane fun plot about a killer shopping sitter next to the incredibly poignant plot about death coming to terms with his own mortality in a rural setting and falling in love with an old spinster mm. um yeah it, 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 it is jarring but at the same time i sort of admire the ambition and uh, mm. kind of um imaginative uh, diversity that's that's at play to mm. ha- have both of those uh, under the within the one book is pretty impressive in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, I had also I'd forgotten. Um, oh, one thing is they when they talk about all of Rid Cully's modernizing innovations, okay. uh, they mention how he wants to start a football team to play in the, oh, like uh, yeah. that, that will have a a payoff way 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 down the line. <laughs> but I'm seeing. Um, 
unseen academicals. There's also a mention of the amazing Morris and his educated Rosemary. Yeah, again, I remember that. He's going to pay off for ages. Yeah. And there's a mention of Casanunda, the disc's greatest lover, which will pay off in the very next book. I um, imagine there's a lot of moments, like during the books, that, or when he's, uh, Terry Batchel was doing research, that he might just like pick a random character or a thing he said and say, yeah, there's room to expand there. And he just throws yeah. it in there. And interestingly, it nearly always works and it doesn't feel at all that he's just kind of like oh he's expanding on that I didn't think there was like enough there to do that he always I think he's very very careful about it like Casanunda is not something I would have expected Mm -hmm. to you know it's such a throwaway thing that you're like you don't think anything of it like oh nothing will come of that it's just like a funny piece of trivia but then as you say he's a full long character in the next book and it's it's great (laughs) I love that bit especially because he latches on to Nanny Og which is fantastic (laughs) what a great pairing almost literally (laughs) (laughs) it's such a great pairing But uh, yeah, I, I really I enjoyed it. Mm. Going to the university faculty here in a lot of ways. I've forgotten how good the senior wrangler was. I'd always thought of like yeah. the, the dean as the main, the kind of most self-indulgent and silly one. And very... Also, you, you find out the dean is a never-nude in this one, which will be of interest to any um, Arrested Development oh, yeah. uh, viewers. Where there, there's a part where they talk about baiting, and he, he mentioned some... Sorry, I'm find it. Um... He he has a pair of undergarments or something on whenever he washes. Oh, what was it? No, um, uh, I think Ridicoli is saying something about like uh, you have to take your clothes off every time you go to uh, take a bath, and uh, Dean says, "Well, yeah, if you want to do it, like." Oh yeah, yeah. He says uh, doing it. He talks about the right of Ashkent and how he doesn't oh. want to do it without all the kind of bells and whistles and candles and so on. He said doing it without the right paraphernalia is like taking all your clothes off to have a bath. That's what I do, said Rick Cully. <laughs> well, each to his own, of course. But some of us like to think we're maintaining standards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Which I just, I just got a kick out of that, uh, that joke. But yeah, I, 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 like, I always remembered him as like him bouncing off Rick Cully the most when Rick Cully's mm. bizarrely, even though he's such a kind of deranged character himself, being the only sane man. But I forgot how the senior wrangler has this very distinct personality of being a incredibly a socially pedantic and having and like an anal retentive yeah. <laughs> uh, thing of detail uh, you know he'll keep like sort of picking apart metaphors they're making or little mistakes saying oh actually you can do this and yeah. Cully will just turn around and shut him up um, he does have a distinct um, personality like when you're reading it but having said that I, like, I think it's quite telling I forgot as well that he had that particular personality mm-hmm. trait him and the lecturer in recent runes like for me a lot of the time they kind of just gel together yeah um and i couldn't i mean as you said the dean always stands out to me i think i remember particularly in a uh, soul music because i think he's the one who gets uh, the leather jacket and tries to put the studs <laughs> yeah. in the back and lots of bits like that he he, he and the bursar and ridicule they were the three that always stood out to me and then the other two they make it up nicely, but they're not the main players, you know. Um, but not having said that, not that I don't enjoy them, because as you say, there's lots of great dialogue yeah. there. Um, actually, speaking of dialogue, just a little thing that I want to put in there. Uh, I think um, Terry Pratchett had a lot of fun with dialogue in this particular book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, one of the bits that I really, I always enjoy when I come across it is Mrs. Cake, when she leaves her yeah. pre- uh, precognition on and she has these conversations and it's so much fun to like read a book and then like you'll nearly always read the conversation and then you'll go back and try and read it again but like mm-hmm. as a regular conversation so you're like first reading her first reading their response to her re- reaction which she does beforehand it's it's a wonderful really playful moment and it's a real great testament to his writing uh as well as that other little bits like the um, 
the when he uh, death sharpens the side and is able to cut uh, the words yeah. like yeah, in little bits. That's a really great bit. But my favorite bit, and we discussed this beforehand anyway, was um, when Death goes to ask the god Azrael for uh, basically a favor at the end of the book. And in both our editions, um, he says yes, and it takes up about a third of the page. But I remember I had uh, the Death Trilogy, a big, great big hardback book. And it was just beautiful that um, Death asked the question, says, please, can't you grant me a little bit of time? And that was the very end of the right-hand page. And then you turned it over, and an entire page was taken up by this just <laughs> giant yes. And it was like, it's such a wonderful moment. I think... Um, my brother was telling me when he flicked through it, that's what grabbed his eye. That he, he literally like flick, was flicking through it in a shop. Mm-hmm. And then he just came across this one page and just said, yes. He was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> okay, I need to read this and find out what the story is. I'm glad I didn't do that. I didn't. I was very nicely surprised when it actually happened. Yeah, oh, I wasn't because I've got the, I've got the Corgi UK paperback. And uh, in my one, some... Uh, Dopey publisher has it on the uh, right hand page so as soon as you get to the top of the left hand page <laughs> you can see it and hmm. you know you know what's going to happen apparently Pratchett said he, he wrote an extra 800 words in just to balance it out so that it would appear at the top of a left hand page and come with some suspense and they still managed to like I balls love, it up despite yeah. that I love that, that that he actually did that it's, it's just fantastic really <laughs> What do, you, what do you think of Azrael uh, and the auditors who we see for the first time in, in this book? Um, I I don't know. I feel like... Um, I don't think... I think that... Uh, I know that Terry Pratchett comes back to them a little bit, but I don't think... I think he only had a little bit of confidence in them as characters. I mean, there's like a bit of playfulness with the auditors and that like they can't identify as single beings if they do they spontaneously combust and it's like you know it's it's very humorous and all of that um it's i don't know it's to be in all honesty i can't really remember any other occurrences i know they're there in the background i know they get mentioned again but i don't know they're the the main villains essentially in hogfather and teeth of time um Mm. so they're kind of the recurring death villains yeah, having said that, though, they're always kind of background villains, like, pulling the strings, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but... Oh, yeah, well, they certainly don't have the colour to be, to be like, the, at the forefront of things. Mm. Um, I really like them, because I think it's, it's a tall order to make Death the good guy in anything, mm. but they help position him as the good guy with their view of the universe, as mm. like, I think later in Hulkbatter... Death says, like, they just, like, the universe to be a bunch of rocks moving around very, very slowly. Um... And you see how he, even if he takes life, he appreciates it for its variety. Um, and I, I love the part when they're, uh, just before that big yes, when they're having it out with um, with Azrael and Death. And they're both trying to, both he and the auditors are trying to argue the case to Azrael. And they start um, basically leveling accusations at him. Uh, and the accusations they level actually serve as a perfect illustration of what makes him good despite mm. being dead. They said, um, one said, do not listen. He stands accused of meddling. One said, and morticide. One said, and pride and living with intent to survive. One said, and siding with chaos against good order. Um, so those are all the things that, you know, like in a lot of ways make death the good guy. Yeah. The fact that he does those things. So I like, I think they do a good job of 
positioning him as as the good guy yeah. for them. I have and to I agree think, with you there. Yeah, yeah, they serve as a nice counterpoint to moving pictures, which is about uh, essentially like style completely overrunning substance. Mm. You know that you have these creatures that just sort of dwell on that have no real substantial form and dwell on the kind of vague um postmodern exaggerated imaginings of the moving picture screen. And a thousand and, elephants. Yeah, and a thousand <laughs> elephants. And he, I wonder if those thousand elephants would fit down the shopping centre. Yeah, yeah, there we go. That's probably where they put them. That's where they <laughs> ah! were probably put them. Maybe that's how we got rid of the elephants at the end of moving pictures. You wait till the thing came up and just yes. threw them in there. <laughs> um, but but then in, in, in uh, you have the auditors who are substance kind of, uh, how would you put it, um, substance um, like like purpose or function without mm. style function without fashion you know yeah. that, mm. that they just want the universe to be entirely orderly and without any colour or compassion or variety mm. um, so you know it, it's I don't know how whether he was thinking of that consciously, but it's really interesting that those moving pictures and Reaper Man are side by side. That he's yeah, yeah, looking yeah. at the same idea from different very ideas, yeah. you know from the, the, the different side and manifesting it in a very different way. It's interesting that actually, yeah, it's 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 a very actually that's a very interesting point. It's a very good counterbalance, like both those books. So it's great to read them one after the other. I didn't think of it that way now that it's specifically the authors. Um, I, I I never really give an awful lot of thoughts to the auditors, but yeah, that's a very very interesting point. I have to say, hmm. um, just actually one more thing. This this is just a very small point, but something that I really enjoy is um, I love. First of all, I love how um, they talk about the perspective of time and how they see time. Of course, you know, Bill or stopping all the clocks and how he really values time once he has it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the way that. Terry Pratchett sets that up with like the the mayflies and the trees and how that's I think that's really interesting this oh yeah. yeah how like the mayflies are talking about over the course of one day yeah. and and then of the course trees it's thousands of years but they're making the same kind of yeah points. same kind of like uh, uh, observations but my favorite bit like this is a whole thing I have but my favorite bit of the entire thing is uh, how the trolls perceive time how they assume that we're always we're living backwards because yeah. clearly you can see the past but the future is like unknown so clearly we must be going backwards in time it's such a incredibly banal view but it actually makes perfect sense when you're saying it. i don't think there's an awful lot to say about it i just think it's a really neat observation to have uh have, have you ever seen red dwarf yeah yeah you know they're, they're based on a trilogy of books uh and well, well actually it's not quite a trilogy it's like two first two are written by two guys together but then they, they I don't know whether it had a falling out or just creative differences but then both of them essentially write a different toured book oh wow know? but uh, the, the second one ends with um, true uh, sort of black hole time related shenanigans which again to bring it back to the finale of Doctor Who the other day like, yeah, like played a big part in that but uh, it's another kettle of fish altogether um, but due to that they end up leaving Lister on a planet and by the time they go uh, to save him he's like actually aged a huge amount so then they end up bringing him to a parallel universe where time runs in reverse to ah. bring him back to youth and then they will come and get him but in doing this they like it's kind of observed to figure out that like our universe is the aberration and 
every other parallel universe runs like in time time runs the way we would perceive it uh, like as going backwards and that is the right way for things to happen and the reason our world is so screwed up is because time is going your wrong way oh my god so so maybe the the troubles have something (laughs) maybe maybe oh my god that's a really interesting observation (laughs) oh um that's that's really all the points I had. I had one thing that didn't really go anywhere. I was thinking about, um, you know, how the boogeyman comes out of the closet. I was yeah. thinking, huh, I wonder if there's any, like, you know, gay characters or anything in the Discworld or anything like that. And I was trying to think. I couldn't think of any. Could you? Um, there is explicitly in uh, Unseen Academicals, um, there's oh. a guy who is essentially like a version of Diego Maradona who's like a... Uh, Macarana or Maracana or something is like explicitly said to be to be gay and there's another I think a dwarf in that that's kind of is he a dwarf but he's he sort of hinted to be they never come out and say it but like he like he's uh, you know he, he seems to be um, gay as well and you had the whole dwarf thing throughout it about their yeah. gender identity mm. kind of essentially sort of functions as a thing for coming out of closet but both in terms of trans as well as I actually, sexuality it's kind of a shame um, but of course that's something we'll get to in a couple of books down the line it's kind of a shame that like the whole um, you know uh, dwarf's gender thing didn't come out like nowadays in particular considering like how often you hear the phrase like did you just assume my gender and like with dwarves I'm like well you know no of course not I have to figure it out first that kind of way <laughs> Um, yeah, I was also thinking that um, Monsters Regiment might have I, oh, yeah, it's yeah, been a long time since yeah. I've read it so I can't remember if there are specific characters oh, I, actually I think now that you say it yeah, I think it's hinted to the um, two of the people who find out are women are, are in a relationship together oh okay um, but since um, just, uh, the death of rats comes up for the first time of this I thought you were going to say the death of rats was gay death of rats <laughs> him and quote <laughs> gay interspecies intervitality <laughs> relationship oh uh, as they say still better than Twilight eh <laughs> um, I'm sure there's probably some slash fiction written about them uh, actually yeah um, it's good to know that the death of rats coming that was another thing that I was going to put down and I forgot to write down apparently he's complete Pratchett said like you know, watch out for the side characters. And he literally came up with him as a joke where he, um, you know, I, th- I think he wrote these bits where, you know, where all the other deaths, like you see the death of mayflies and so on. Um, and he just liked the death of rats. Mm. Uh, so he, when death calls all the other deaths back into him, he had him survive as an independent entity. And it has that, like, actually it turns out to be quite touching when death says that, like, I remember when you were part of me and he thinks like how, lonelier he'd be without mm. the death of rats and it's not, actually and it's, to keep him it's even it's kind of like a humanist trait a little bit like um it's it's great that like he maintains like uh you know his principles in his job and like he goes back about like the whole bill door incident is a memory but something that he cherishes so mm-hmm. that like he can value life but at the same time by like taking on the death of rats it's it's a little bit like you know getting a pet which is a very like human trait, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's kind of it. It actually works very, very well in for like, especially for like the finale of the book, because that's like one of the last things to happen. Yeah, it really does. But but apparently Pratchett didn't have any plans to like, do much more with the character, and yet, but yet he keeps coming up like he plays like a relatively big role in uh, mm. soul music and Hogfire. And he's a great character. He's almost like for a lot of the um, whenever you see. I remember going to like a Discworld convention last year and like he was the mascot really mm-hmm. like you saw him everywhere 
I saw this one really amazing, like kind of a, a figurine of it. Um, I don't. I think it was made of like a clay or something. But my god, it was beautiful. It cost about three hundred euros, so I couldn't really afford it. But my god, it was amazing. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just have one more sort of the main observation about this, and something I kind of alluded to in the last episode when we talked about moving pictures, and I said it's it's essentially the first book in the like the modern disc world. Where after mm. moving pictures, you begin to have books that reuse and develop characters, and it gives yeah. like that more settled this world. And obviously, this is the first one. You have like death coming back um, for the you know like after having already uh, been depicted in Mort, but you also have other stuff again, like the wizards right on the for once their faculty hasn't changed. You know, in mm. all the previous ones, you've had a different arch chancellor yeah. each time. And like interchangeable people under him, and this immediately after moving pictures, you have the same Rick Cully is still there, and it still, I suppose, talks about the process of bedding him in, like uh, discusses that he's either the best or the worst arch chancellor yeah. they've ever had, and uh, like I love the descriptions of him as a leader. That, oh, like, he's fantastic! His, it, he never ever changes mind about anything. <laughs> uh, he it takes him a while to understand things, but this is a good trait because if anyone has given you up under telling you what, <laughs> explaining it to you, they probably should have been bothering it with you. But, that's, that's a mentality a lot of us have you know whenever you see like a, a private number calling you and says well if it's important they'll call back again yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> useful trait we're leaders in the making <laughs> but yeah so it, it very much kind of I see, like in even though he's so different in moving pictures from pre, the previous arch chancellors uh, with the exception of I suppose to, to chap in equal rights is somewhat similar mm-hmm but that guy in Equal Rights is gone by um, sorcery, say. Mm. So, Reed Cully could very easily be gone by, you know, by this one. If, if you're reading it for the first time as it comes out, it probably is quite a surprise to see, oh, it's, it's the same guy. Is yeah, yeah. And it's these same people under him, like that, well, we don't get their names, but we get their titles and they're evidently the same characters. So I think there's a bit of a change in that, like, the Dean goes from... Um, like, in, in Moving Pictures, he was very much the most uptight one about, like, rule-breaking and... Mm. Even though he's still uptight and pompous here, from here on in, he's very like he's the one who embraces. It's actually a natural their, uh, evolution of his character because, yeah. like he, he absolutely relishes breaking the rules because he never used to do that before. Yeah, that's so it makes true. sense for like later like in kind of, uh, iterations of his character to really get on board. But and you see it again, especially in soul music. That's the one I always come back to. That like he absolutely loves the idea of rebelling. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you have them being developed further. Um, you have Dibbler after his biggest role in moving pictures, mm. just still comfortably shifting back to the background and being a fixture of uh, Ankh Borpork. Um, like he's, he's, in a lot of ways, he's relatively important to the plot because he um, he's the one who distributes all the snow globes. Yeah. But he's still he's nowhere near as important as he was in moving pictures. Mm. So it's it sort of shows that like his character is always there and can still play this part in the plot. Um, you have Colin. I like, was about to say yeah, I yeah. actually quite like the way they handle, um, especially the likes of Colin and Nobby specifically, mm-hmm. because I I have to say I think if I had to choose like one of the subsections of the Discworld series, the guards would probably be my favorite has a lot of my favourite characters, but you'll often find any um, story that takes place in Ankh-Morpork, you'll often have Colin or Nobby there as kind of background characters, kind of like, you know, kind of like law enforcers, but not really. They're more like law observers. Like, you know, it's just, uh, they make great um, mob uh, 
figureheads, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, especially you see that when uh, they have that uh, facade at the uh, crossroads when they're trying to bury Wendell Poons. And I actually love that moment where Colin finally gets his calling. He says, I knew someone would try and steal a street sometime. <laughs> yeah. And he comes down and he's absolutely delighted. And then you have that wonderful turn where he realizes he's actually in the middle of a very, very angry mob. And he gets really kind of humble and it's like oh um, well uh, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah so so they're there and they make Ang Morvork feel like a, a more familiar consistent place mm. where you know it had like you feel as if um, there are things going on in Ang Morvork between books and when we're not seeing Colin or Dibbler uh, or the or the unseen university faculty on page, they're doing something else. Yeah. Whereas in earlier books, it was just a sort of setting for him to throw down this, you know, uh, random like spraying of characters that he needed for this particular book. Uh, you know, like veterinary is another one. Obviously, you play such a big part uh, going forward, particularly in the the watch and the mice mm. subseries. Although this and is here, he like he just gets a scene and the point of the scene is just to get across the general chaos that is going on in the city w- through the absence of death. So, like, in in a, a lot of ways, that, like, really cements him as patrician because there's no even reason for it to be him. Yeah. But it's like, w- okay, you need a scene to show that, like, D- Windle isn't the only oddity here with, you know, with uh, there being a lack of death. It's all over the city. So go to the patrician's office Patrician's the same guy as he has been for the past few books that he doesn't have to be a focal point, but it seems so natural. Like you don't feel it doesn't seem strange that he is only in this book for a short time, mm-hmm. you know, because he's so cemented by this point after Gareth Scars and even moving pictures as the patrician. The idea that you get this one scene in his office is like you don't feel as if, oh hey, where's Veterinary? Why isn't he in this one? It's like, mm-hmm. well, of course the you know, they would go to the patrician's office and of course it's gonna be him. I also find it interesting uh, in hindsight, that similar to when he sees Victor and Ginger, and he can, in moving pictures, and he can't really understand why why they're mm-hmm. famous or what their appeal is. Here, you have him sort of at sea as to how to deal with um with the lack of death. Mm-hmm. That nice Ghostbuster shout out where he says, "Who am I going to call?" Yeah. Um, but I I I like that because I I feel even though he's this incredibly intelligent foresightful um, organised character there's no way he'd be able to foresee or deal with this yeah, he's you know, a politician the, yeah the absence you know, so. of death um, and in the same way that the moving pictures fad is something that sort of seeps through into the disc from another universe it makes sense that he doesn't know much about that either mm. and I, I, I have a suspicion although I don't know whether this will be borne out as we move along that he sort of gets more omnipotent as the books progress, and I'm not entirely sure whether that's a good thing. So I sort of like that there's... I feel like that... Like, the, the veterinary here, who doesn't know what's going on with the lack of debt, still, to me, feels entirely consistent with the guy who is so organised that he's built locks on the inside of his own dungeon and is completely relaxed about... um, What's his name? Lupine once is a, uh, like, failed coup against him. You know what I mean? Yeah, Like, yeah. to me, I can... I can have veterinary as this incredibly organized, coldly calculating sort of Batman meets Lex Luthor style, uh, benign Machiavellian figure. But at the same time, that there are like that there are limits to that. That he mm. can't 
he has this context that he understands on the Sankt Morpork. But when you have these supernatural intrusions into it, he's, uh, you know, as confused by them as the next person. Um, and I think that's good. I think it lends more weight to what's going on in the books and it obviously lends more weight into, like, the people who then do have to deal with these things and solve them. You aren't mm. there thinking, oh, well, veterinary knows, knows what's going on and he will take care of it or should be taking care of it. To me, the comparison is obvious. He's basically Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> like he's a lot less brash <laughs> you know he, he can deal with like all the matters that are on the ground but as soon as you get stuff from other worlds he's kind of a bit well what do we do here <laughs> but no I absolutely agree with you yeah and um, I do think a lot of the omnipotent omnip, omnipresence study <laughs> and that comes in mostly in the guards books and that's mostly as kind of a not necessarily a foil to uh, Vimes' character but certainly like somewhat reactionary to it because like Vimes is used to being um, you know in control for the most part but he also to a certain degree needs veterinary he needs like a, so he doesn't want to be at the top but like he also wants to be have control of his own life and a certain degree of you know other control you know um, yeah. I don't know that's that's just my opinion but as you said we'll see like as we go along maybe maybe we'll have a yeah. different opinion at the point at the time yeah there's no suspect there right now so I'm I'm kind of out of uh, observations on um, Reaper Man. Should should we get to ranking it, or do you have anything else to say? Nope, I think I'm pretty much good. We've covered just about everything. So um, yeah, uh, ranking now. Let me see. So the first one that we had at number one was Pyramids. Yeah. I don't think this is better than that in any case. Um, you're sure it's not better than Pyramids? Yes, I'm afraid there, I have issues with the pacing, so I wouldn't put it above that. I wouldn't put it above Guards Guards either, or Mort, um, or moving pictures. I, I find this I find this a really hard one to rank because the highs are spectacular. Yeah, um, but it also I also feel like it has one of the biggest issues with pacing in, in uh, uh, most of them so it's it's a difficult balancing act yeah but but again I, I think that can kind of be see, that you could argue that's the strength of having that variety in there um, like it's the stuff the you know the death Miss Flitworth um, relationship is, is incredible like the part at the end when he's looking he makes for the first time something colourful and moving in his mm. own world and uh it's it's the cornfield and he's watching it and I love the mixture of uh, comedy and kind of uh, uh, I don't know um, emotion that comes from Albert just being oblivious to its significance and saying oh well we needed a bit of colour around here and then making it really obvious don't you have somewhere to be yeah. and it's funny because it's so awkward but at the same time by that point in the book you realise what it takes for debt to say something like that like it's it's you know, if he's being that obvious about just like just go away, imagine how strongly he's he's feeling, mm. and just little moments like when when he's sharpening the side, and she gives him the silk, and it's from her wedding dress, and she says never mm. worn, and I love that. You know, it it doesn't come up then. Like he doesn't even speculate that this is from her wedding dress, and that side doesn't even get used. That's not like you know she makes this huge gesture mm. to give him her unused wedding dress. And it doesn't even matter. Like, it doesn't even count. Um, 
These, which, are, these are all from like the death side though I mean they're still like the wizarding side like, what yeah well I mean the, the, the wizarding side there for one I mean the concept of a parasitic mm. shopping centre there are very few other writers that, that, that true, can do true. that uh, the wizards are incredibly funny and likewise the, the Fresh Start Club is this wonderful um, w- wonderfully um, original invention that is at once perfectly in keeping with so many of the themes of the book, yet quite often isn't tied into them in a really, you know, um, overt or on the nose sort of way. Mm. Uh, having said all that, there are issues. Like, as you said, it can be quite jarring going from one plot line to the other when all they have to tie them together is the sense of, well, this thing is happening on one side of the world because this thing has happened on the other side of the world, you know, a sort of mm. like butterfly effect parallel lines uh, style plot. Um, and there's the odd thing, like I find you mentioned about um, Schleppel, the, the boogeyman mm-hmm. coming out, like sort of coming out of the closet. Um, and I like, I, I like that idea and him as a kind of uh, agoraphobic boogeyman's fun, but the way he suddenly recovers from his agoraphobia at the yeah, end when they very... meet him most feels a bit of a day you say machina yeah it really you does you know like all hopes lost oh no here he is I vaguely, um, I vaguely remember there being more to that though, but no it's just literally a case of oh well this is needed to happen now so yeah um, yeah because you don't like he hangs around with Windle a bit and they speak but he's mainly there to like he explains to Windle about what's going on with the excess of life force. Mm. You don't have a huge amount of Windle giving him a pep talk that you know explains as to why he gets this sudden burst of confidence. Likewise, and this is less so. I think like the fact that like Windle's sort of super strong as uh, you know as a zombie. I don't know whether I mean that's what zombies kind of generally are in folklore yeah so that feels okay but i i, I like i always feel really good I, I feel like there should be more to explain why why that is you know there's yeah. the kind of sense that his body works more efficiently when he can manually control it himself with like why you know with his spirit just whatever floating down to his spleen and making his mm. spleen work but it doesn't really explain why he should just be really you know a lot stronger yeah like um, i mean i can sort of get to a certain extent but the one bit that always grabs me is the bit where the librarian jumps on his shoulders and like I'm pretty sure like that would still make him crumble like if yeah yeah it's I think that's more of an issue with zombies as a concept and something we just assume as opposed to like Terry Pratchett I think he was yeah. just a case of jumping on zombies are strong Grant so um yeah um I have to say I can we agree anyway I don't think I'd rank this above Mort even though the ambition is loftier I think Mort is better put together and it touches on some of the issues in this even if it doesn't explore them as well see so, the, the thing I'll always come back to in Mort um, for all I love about it and it's a lot I mean you, the you ending. were there when yeah it's the mm. ending and like like particularly when we're talking about like Reaper Man not being as good structurally it's like it does have Re- a good Reaper ending. Man definitely you know like kind of um doesn't resort to sort of uh, even though Schleppel coming out from what the door is a DUA Machina of Zorts it's not as big a glaring as DUA Machina as I sorted the central like problem of this book out with a god and it's grand mm. now like if you compare like essentially what he does for Mort um, with the the uh, timer giving him more time is what he does for Sal mm. and what he, yeah, what, yeah, what he does for Sal he has this whole argument with Miss Flitworth and with himself it would build or versus death mm. 
over whether to do that. And, and and that seems to be, you know, and even that has the consequence of it lessens his lifetime. So then the new debt arrives quicker to get him. And it gives him this uh, sort of added incentive then that, well, he's got to stop the new debt, not only for to stop him from dying, but also because Sal will die too. Um, I, I, like, I think the new debt more or less like asks, tells Mrs. Flitworth, give me the child. Um, so it, you know, it gives it more, uh, more of a sense of consequence. Their conflict beyond just being death fighting for his job back. I mean, I see if that weren't enough as it is. Whereas with Mort, it's the whole book is about this conflict between, like, your human compassion versus the kind of how the universe has got to work and death being an essential part of it. And in a way, it like it gets resolved in Mort's case completely bypasses that argument mm-hmm. like the argument the book's been having for the whole time and uh, I know it, it, I'm probably not articulating this as well as I want but I feel like there's a difference between how well this book presents a lot of arguments without seeming to come down really explicitly on one side of them mm-hmm. or the other and the way Mort completely bypasses the central argument it's it's more of a like a tease you know that it like it sets up like like this is it how do you solve this problem ah don't worry you don't you know not, don't think about mm-hmm. it i say uh, we, we've talked about this before i have less of an issue with the ending of more than you do but we won't go into that because we'll be here all day mm-hmm. personally i simply because like the structure of this book bothers me more like i'm not gonna lie i do love the ambition and it presents arguments really well as you said, the highs are fantastic, but it's still like wrapped around what I think is kind of a flawed structure. So I, I, I can't really rate it that highly, even like it's it's a flawed masterpiece, basically. So um, whereas like, hmm, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't I can't rate it above more myself personally. Um, well, like I think it, it's it's definitely like the arguments. It's to be high there. anyway. Like, like, you know, it's it's either either just beneath more or just above it, right? Because um, like I, I I I agree with you in a lot of ways about the jarringness of the two like you know parallel plot lines. That mm. like I playing devil's advocate by saying that they they can be seen as a strength, and it, like in a lot of ways they are in a sense that I really admire him for being able to write all that stuff and have it in the one book, mm. but. You know, in a lot of other ways, it, it does make it sort of um, jarring. And then there's this sense of, I, like I said, it, it doesn't kind of shaken out from its conclusion in the way that Mort does. But mm. there is a sense of that, like any of the kind of the conclusion of either Windle in the shopping center or debt against the new debt, both could be bigger if you could kind of decide which one's the more important final battle and mm. the book doesn't really decide that. So I feel like they maybe come off as less than they could. Mm. Um, although maybe that's me, you know, maybe other people argue, well, like the real conclusion is him talking to Azrael and whatever the, the uh, him fighting the new death is, as he said, drama um, mm. in that dismissive way. But I, for, for me anyway, like in terms of just like... Guards, guards, and pyramids beat it on sort of that like plot tightness alone and that deftness of being able to do many things but still mm. remain in the you know um, still tell this coherent, consistent story. So, and I, I think it's a bold moving pictures um, because death uh, is a more compelling character than Victor or Ginger. While I like mm. them, like and it's like his kind of 
central bit is more interesting. I think the the faculty bit in um the the bits with the faculty in Reaperman are funnier and more kind of um like they they get more room to breathe than the their kind of introduction in moving pictures. Mm. Um, and again, like Windle probably is a, like a sort of weaker one off character than Victor and Ginger, but he still bounces off enough interesting characters in the Fresh Star Club and in the other stuff for it mm. to be, um, for him to be, be like, you know, you don't, you don't get sick of him or anything. Yeah. Like, like he doesn't, he, he doesn't compare to a Vimes or a Granny Weatherwax or anything like that. But it, like, he's, you know, serviceable as a, what well, well, I suppose co-protagonist for, for lack of a better term. Okay. So I suppose it's, it's either, I think it's either like, New number three above Mort or new number four just below Mort. I'll tell you what, how about like you tell me where you'd place it, I'll tell you where I'll place it and we'll just kind of like median it. Well, I'd I, I place it at number three. I'd place, place it, it at number yeah, three. Yeah, okay. Above Mort, beneath Guards, Guards. Now, see, I, obviously, like even though I like it a lot, I'm going to place it lower because have issues with the pacing. Like I place it below Mort. I'd probably place it below Moving Pictures because... Even though the ambition is loftier, I think it's better executed in moving pictures, and I think it, the pacing does mean a lot to me. Um, Weird Sisters, now here's where I want to struggle, because I like Weird Sisters a lot, but it is essentially like a retelling of a story, which I like, but it's... I, I, I don't know, this one's more ambitious. Um, if I had to... See, I think Weird Sisters is a more enjoyable book, but so much more is put into this one it's kind of a case of like you know um what's been achieved and what's popular that kind of way you know i mean weird sisters is basically a shakespeare's play um i think i'd probably have to place it above weird sisters because it's just it does too much so i'd play i'd place that at the new number five so uh, you place it at new number three so number yeah. four then uh, so new number four would be below Mort above moving pictures uh, yeah I suppose we'll squeeze it in here or we'll be here all night um, yeah okay we were so, never going to agree on every single one of no, them no, no this uh, from the beginning <laughs> I, uh, in the very first episode myself and Rose were speculating like what do we do if we really disagree <laughs> we never arrived at something um, so I suppose this this will have to do Yeah. so Reaper Man new number four uh, below Mort, above Moving Pictures. Uh, you can check out that full list. And neither of us are happy with that. I can no, tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is gonna be like like at the end of it. I mean, even where like Weird Sisters is now, I'm already feel feel bad. Thing on, oh, it's an excellent book. Why is it down there? And yet at the same time, trying to pick put it above. Any of those other ones? Yeah, I know. It's it's, it's, it's uh, like really it's tough. tricky. For so long, I felt bad that the color of magic was the last one because you know um, it's the um, introduction for yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah but um, uh, so like it, it's going to be by the end of it. I mean, if you or I were to do a list individually, or Rose were to do a list, it'd be completely it would, yeah, it'd be completely yeah. different. Um, and even I'd say at at uh, at the end of by the time we get to the last one. We're probably looking back and thinking, oh, I wish actually we could reorder it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, the exercise of having to make it this way, I think, is an interesting one. And I suppose makes you think and try to articulate. And I hope we articulate it in an interesting way about, like, what it is you value about the books and kind mm-hmm. of, like, the type, the things you're more willing to forgive than others and the things you treasure more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's no objective measure of quality. So just trying to make a good argument as to why one thing is more appealing than another is 
is more interesting than pretending there's some way you can actually measure it. But we can all agree that like all Terry Pratchett books are amazing. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see when we get to one or one or two that uh, I don't remember being being all that mad about. But um, but certainly the vast majority. I mean, at this stage, uh, like the Cassandra thing when we alluded to that. I mean, I think which is abroad which will be our next episode like came out the same year as Reaper Man or like within months of it like his his streak at this point and he's not only written Discworld ones he wrote the Bromeliad trilogy and um, Good Omens uh, around this time as well uh, so it's just his output is crazy and the, the quality of it I mean it's really yeah awe inspiring but um, that's all to come when we deal with which is abroad so I leave you, dear listener, with one last terrifying thing to ponder on, and that is our fidget spinners, <laughs> the manifestation of our social of the first stage <laughs> of a social parasite in this world. Our fidget spinners, our snow globes. <laughs> I think so. Can I say one more thing before we end up? Absolutely not. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, this is now. This is a little bit sad, but we we're talking about how this is uh, all about the acceptance of death. But I remember that uh, when. Terry Pratchett very, very sadly passed away two years ago. A quote that I saw bandied around an awful lot actually came from this book. And it applies so... It's so appropriate here. It's that nobody is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world fade away. And I don't think that'll... You know, it'll be a very, very, very long time before like the ripples that Terry Pratchett made fade away. I mean, we're still doing... Pod- we're just doing a podcast now of <laughs> yeah, all those yeah. works. So, you know, That's... I don't think those ripples will fade away for quite some time. Yeah, it's true. It's beautiful. That's a much better way to end than my uh, speculation on the cosmological origins of fidget spinners. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it on that poignant note and see you later for uh, Weird Sisters. Oh, wait, well, yeah. I should obviously say, if you want to get in touch in the meantime with any questions, comments, or feedback, uh, hit up Radio Morpork on Twitter or Facebook or email us at radiomorpork at gmail.com. Um, yeah, so... All of that being said, uh, good night, good luck. Thank you.